lot of workaholics out there. Does the Lord have anything to say about that? Stay with me. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Rydelnik. This is Moody Radio's Bible Study Across America. I'm the academic dean and professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I'm so glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you talking about the scriptures. Well, now's the time. If you want to give us a call with your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life, uh, now's the time to call. The phone number is 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. Trisha McMillan is our producer. Handling all things technical is Courtney Young. And answering the phones today is Mara Martinez. Now, go get yourself a cup of coffee, open your Bible, because we're about to study the scriptures together. But before that, let's talk about workaholism. I have to ask us all, are we workaholics? We should think about these questions. Do we get up early, no matter how late we went to bed? Do we work while we're eating lunch? Do we work on weekends and holidays? Do we find it hard to take a vacation? If you answered yes to these questions, you very well may be a workaholic. Well, someone wants to find workaholism as an addiction to work rather than results. Then again, there are many results-oriented people who always find something else that needs to get done. Sometimes we think, well, what's so bad about working hard? And the answer is nothing. It's commendable. But addiction to work is dangerous. At our jobs, workaholism actually makes us less productive. Dr. Charles Garfield of the University of California said, the workaholic never makes the discovery, never writes the position paper, or becomes the CEO. In our homes, it leads to failed relationships, alienated children, even divorce. Workaholism creates havoc for our own well-being. It produces physical exhaustion, emotional burnout, alcoholism. It even causes heart attacks. Workaholism also keeps us from giving God the worship and reasonable service due to him. Why do some of us work so much? Uh, any number of reasons, including our own self-expectations, or we're trying to build our own self-esteem, or sometimes because of employer expectations. Whatever the cause, it's hurting us. That's why Eva and I committed to a weekly personal Sabbath for physical rest and spiritual renewal. And now that the semester is over, and this is what spurred me to think about this, we're taking a few days off this week. We'll read, we'll walk, we'll play with our grandkids. We just need a few days. It's also why we're planning a full vacation this summer. The reason for these decisions is that we're trying to follow the principle laid down in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10 reads, Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You have six days in which to do your work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to me. On that day, no one is to work. People are sometimes confused about this word from God. Sometimes people think we're still obligated to keep, keep the Sabbath as Israel did. Others think all the Sabbath laws have been transferred to Sunday. Still others think, since there's 
This is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. There's no need to take a day of rest, that we're free to work seven days a week, in essence, to become workaholics with God's approval. But let's understand Sabbath law as it is in the Bible. First, at creation, God set an example for humanity by resting on the seventh day. Genesis 2, 2 and 3. After creating the world, it's not as if God was tired. You know, omnipotence knows no fatigue. Omniscience doesn't run out of ideas. Rather, God was modeling for us what we need to rest from our labors. Second, at Mount Sinai, God gave Israel a command to keep the Sabbath. You can read about that in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Uh, Exodus 31, 12 through 17. For the first time, living as a theocracy under God, Israel was to obey him by keeping the Sabbath. Third, with the new covenant, God established a principle of rest for all of us. By not repeating the command in the New Testament and by warning us not to let anyone judge us with regard to Sabbath observance, that's in Colossians 2.16, it becomes clear that we're not necessarily to keep the Sabbath as Israel did. Rather, we need to listen to Paul's explanation in Romans 14.5. One person considers one day to be, of another, to be above another day. Someone else considers every day to be the same. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. The point is, it doesn't matter what day we choose to take as our rest day, but we must remember, we must remember the principle that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the need to rest one day a week. And not just one day. We need to take a few more days rest when we can. We need to take vacations so we can rest and be restored. Here's three reasons rest is so crucial. First, we need to rest to rejuvenate ourselves. Our bodies grow weary. Our emotions grow strained. We need to rest to renew our strength and relieve our stress. The Lord Jesus himself said to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. Mark 6.31 Second, we need to rest to remember our God. Taking a rest reminds us of our Creator, who also rested after finishing the creation. It also recalls our Redeemer, who delivered us with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the rest day. Deuteronomy 5.15 Third, we need to rest to renew our spirits. Just as a compass needs to be recalibrated periodically to keep it pointing in the right direction, so we need recalibration on a weekly basis to keep us balanced. We need a day of worship with others, an additional appointment with God for some extended time alone, or a day for more in-depth study of the Bible. (laughs) We may need some time to listen to just just to listen to some beautiful music or to ride bikes with our spouses or to play catch with our kids or even just to watch a ball game with some friends. All these will help us recover from the strains of work and prepare us for the challenges that are still ahead. So don't feel guilty for not working all the time. When the workday is over, turn off your phone notifications and stop checking your email. Plan to include rest recreation, and renewal for at least one day a week, and take that vacation. Even if finances mean it has to be a staycation, take it. 
obey God's word and take a rest. Well, I hope you uh, will listen to that. And uh, this is like preparing you. I'll be taking some rest time this summer. Trish is happy about that. She'll be taking some rest time this summer. Uh, uh, Courtney, I hope you will. Are you? Yeah, she's nodding her head. Uh, it's, I think, planning a vacation, even if it's a home vacation, really great for you. I hope you'll be doing that. But while you're planning and thinking about the summer, I want you to be thinking about the fall. We're getting near the end of application times for Moody Bible Institute. And uh, we, we really have a great opportunity for your kids and your grandkids, whoever, or if you're listening and you're in uh, high school age or college age, Moody Bible Institute is a great place to get a great foundation for life, to be saturated in the scriptures, to be given foundational teaching about the truth of God, uh, and guided for ministry in how to serve Him. We've got a few places left in the dorms. We're hoping that you will apply. So if you will consider it, check out Moody Bible Institute. Go to moody.edu. I think it's a fantastic place to study. I've never regretted for a moment that I began my education at Moody Bible Institute. Well, we're going to go right to the phones, and we're going to start with uh, someone named Michael in New Jersey listening online. Hello, Michael. How can I help you today? Come on, this is your buddy Michael Cohn. I know, it's my friend Michael Cohn. Look at you. How are you? Brooklyn, New York, living in exile in New Jersey. Yeah. Very quickly, I just want to mention one thing. I am blessed not to have the problem of workaholism. As a matter of fact, I have the opposite problem, which is procrastination. <laughs> but I'm going to deal with that tomorrow. You okay. Know? Figure it out tomorrow. That's a good idea. Tomorrow. Yeah. You know, yeah. Why bother today? So listen, here's my question. Okay, it's about demons. I mean, like studying demons and stuff. So I want scriptural, like you know, uh, evidence that demons can put thoughts into our heads. And my question also, you know, scripturally speaking, is can demons also read our minds? That's my question. Can demons... Uh, you, you're blipping in and out there. I'm, I'm going to put you... Let me just be clear. Uh, can demons uh, put thoughts in our heads? And can they read yes, our minds? Correct, yes. Okay. Well, first of all, I think in terms of reading our thoughts, I... I don't believe they can, they're not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. But they have a higher intellect, I believe, than, uh, than and, and a, a greater intuition than we ever could imagine. Uh, I, I would, I would care, compare it to this. I'm do, when I would sit at my computer, I remember the summer I was working on a commentary for the Moody Bible Commentary. I was working on Daniel and Zechariah and Haggai. I was writing those. And it was a very hot summer. And I had a dog at the time named Darby. And uh, Darby would be really good. It was hot. We, we'd walk her early in the morning before working on the commentary. Eva was working too on it. And then... Uh, we wouldn't walk him in the afternoon because it was so hot. And then at about uh, 5.30, when I was about ready to knock off, I thought, well, we'll take the dog for a walk. But it might be 5.20, it might be 5.30, it might be 5.40. It was right around then. Uh, and I'd be sitting at my computer. I wouldn't make a move. The thought would come into my head, oh, i got to take the dog for a walk. But it didn't seem like I changed anything. But 
Darby would come right up to me and start wagging her tail and jumping around like it's time to go for a walk. I thought, how does she know? I must be doing something that she is picking up on and knows when it's time. And I think if if a dog can do that, certainly a demon can do that. So I think demons observe us. They watch us. They know what we're thinking only by observing us and seeing our patterns. And that's how they can, it seems like, read our minds, but they're really not reading our minds. They're just observing us, and they do it real well. The second thing is, can they put thoughts in our heads? I think they can put things in our way that put thoughts in our heads. I don't think that they can actually implant the thoughts, uh, but again, they can make circumstances happen around us that make it appear that they're putting thoughts in our heads. So uh, we, I think what we have to do is recognize that we have a foe that is very powerful, and Satan and the demons are uh, very uh, influential in how we think and all that, but, but it's not by putting thoughts in our heads. It's by putting things in our way that put thoughts in our heads. and uh, But remember this too, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We never, ever have to fear the enemy. Okay? Yeah, but can you just give an example of that? I'm not like totally What do you mean? You. Uh, about like, you know, that they put things in our way. Okay. Uh, like, uh, yeah. I, I think they help, for one thing, they, they help organize television commercials. Uh <laughs> Okay. I I think they uh, they work to uh, put things on the back of cereal boxes that make us think of things. They, uh, I gotcha. They 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 do all sorts of stuff. They manipulate things in society uh, by by making us get these things that we think are benign that pass from our uh, before our eyes, and then boom, we're off uh, tempted. Uh, the the passage I would point you to, and then I, yeah. I got to take a break here, Mike. So I'm going to hurry up and tell you of this. Of course, of course. Uh, yeah. But it's great to hear from you. Uh, okay. Uh, it's in in James one. It says, "No one undergoing a trial should say, I 'I'm being tempted by God,' for God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone." But but verse fourteen says, "But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires." So he's enticed. So it's the enemy knows what our own evil desires are, and he drops the bait in front of us, and then we are enticed by our own evil desires. That's how it works. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. I love you, man. Take care. I love you Keep too. In touch. Come on. Uh, okay. <laughs> we'll talk later. Well, we're gonna have take a break here. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk about the scriptures together. More of your questions, you can always call 877-548-3675. Stay right there. This is Michael Rydelnik. The program's called Open Line. I'll be right back with more of your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. My name is Michael Radelnik. This is Open Line. Our phone number here, 877-548-3675. If you have a question about the Bible or God or the spiritual life, now's the time to call. We'll get you in the queue, hoping to talk with you today as we study the scriptures together. Before we get back to the phones, I want to talk about our current resource. It's a classic by Charles Ryrie. It's called Balancing the Christian Life. We... 
Jesus followers always want to grow, hopefully. But I think we tend to get off balance. We emphasize one aspect of growth over another. And as a new follower of Jesus, this is the book that gave me a great foundation for spiritual growth. I still use it as a discipleship tool with new believers. And it's also helpful for wherever you're at in your growth as a follower of Jesus. I think it's a terrific book. I'm so glad it's still in print, and it's yours when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. We want to say thank you by sending you Balancing the Christian Life. Just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, ask for Balancing the Christian Life by Dr. Ryrie. Well, we're going to go right back to the phones. We're going to speak with Sandy in Cambridge, Minnesota, listening on KCFB. Welcome to Open Line, Sandy. How can I help you? Hey. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I'm in a Bible study with other women, and we're studying this book on the Holy Spirit and the mm-hmm. power of the names of the Holy Spirit. And one of those names was given, like, the breath. And so my question is, in the book, it's saying, like, the breath of God is another name for the Holy Spirit. So I was thinking when um, God breathed life into Adam, is that the Holy Spirit that he breathed into him? Or I'm just thinking to the scripture for what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man, which is in him. Well, so uh, let, let, me, different... let me just see if I can help you with this, okay? Uh, yes. In, I think the Holy Spirit worked in creation because it says the earth was formless and empty. I, I like to call it uh, I think the best Hebrew translation, the earth, or the, the earth was a wilderness and a waste, a wasteland. And darkness mm-hmm. covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the wa- waters. So the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, that's, the, uh, that's part of the creation process. I think God the Father was the architect. This is how I always look at the triune God involved in creation. God the Father was the architect, uh, the, God the Son was the builder, and God the Holy Spirit was the instrument in the builder's hand. Is that? Mm-hmm. And so the, the Holy Spirit was involved there. When you look at Genesis 2, when it describes in detail the creation of humanity, it says that, uh, that God uh, blew the breath of life into man. Uh, it says here, I'm looking here for the verse, uh, it says, uh, the Lord God took the man, I'm looking here at the verse, it's here in Genesis 2, I just looked at it, and now I've lost it. Uh, here it is, verse 7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit there. I don't think breath there represents the Holy Spirit, or he might elsewhere. What that is saying is, is God breathed life. And so he took what looked like a, a pile of clay, a lump of clay, and formed it and then breathed life into it. That's a miraculous work of the Spirit, but uh, it's the breath of life so that we became living beings. He blew, uh, the imagery there is breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. It's just that which makes us living that's what he breathed into us. Instead of inanimate, he animated us. That's what it, what it does. Okay? 
That's all that's talking right. about. It was an act of the Holy Spirit. He was an instrument in that, but he wasn't, uh, it, it's not indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That comes only with salvation. That comes by faith, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Is that what they're talking about, spirit of man? Well, are, I think when God breathed life into us, when God breathed life into us, that's when we got that immaterial part of us, the mind, the, the heart, the will, the, the conscience, all that stuff, which includes what sometimes is called the spirit of a person uh, or a soul. You know, the, it's so hard to distinguish between all these things that I just mentioned that I just prefer to call it the immaterial part of humanity, of human beings. And, mm-hmm. and that's when God breathed the breath of life into us and put his image on us, that's when we got that immaterial part. Got it. Okay? Okay. Great. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for your call. Uh, We're going to speak with Shane in Spokane, Washington. By the way, that last thing, the most important thing to remember is when people, just to go back to the idea of God breathing life into us, uh, that shows God is sovereign over life. I think that is so crucial for every human being. Once uh, I, I had blood clots on my lungs and many years ago, and the doctor said, wow, God must have wanted you alive. Otherwise, you'd have died because 99 out of 100 people would have died. And I said to him, not only today, but in him we live and move and have our being. Every day uh, we are alive because of him. And, and I think that's crucial to remember. He's sovereign over life. And then also... We have worth to God. None of us deserve salvation, but God paid an infinite price to redeem us. That's what the Father did. He gave his one and only Son. It was so crucial that he redeem us because we have such worth to him. Why do we have such value? Why? Because he breathed life into us. He's the one that made us in his own image. He gave us value and worth. Uh, we'll never be worthy but he's given us worth, and we have to remember that. So, uh, okay, thanks thanks again, Shane, for that. Uh, well, no, this is Shane now coming up. Thanks for that last call, though. Hey, Shane, welcome to Open Line. I'm glad you're listening from Spokane, Washington on KMBI. How can I help you today? Hey, good morning. Thanks for the call. Can you hear me okay? Uh, yeah, you sound great. Okay, great. Hey, I uh, I'll take it back to where you started this morning in the Ten Commandments, and... I had a question specifically uh, of Exodus 20, verse 4, where it's talking about the graven images. And it says, you know, not to make any graven image or of any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or in the water underneath. And then you fast forward that commandment to just a couple of chapters ahead in 25, verse 18, where they're receiving specific instructions on how to make the Ark of the Covenant and how to make the mercy seat. And in the specific instructions for the mercy seat, they're told to make two cherubim, specifically, you know, how their wings should look and what they should cover. So I guess my question was, you know, could you compare those two verses, please, and just kind of try to um, separate the two uh, between the graven images of anything, you know, in heaven, and then fast forward to now we're making... Uh, cherubim and putting them above the mercy seat. Yeah. Uh, What 20 verse 4 is saying is don't make something an image that you will worship. Don't make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in heaven or earth 
or the waters under the earth. Don't bow down, bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Verse 4 isn't saying you can't have a picture of your wife or paint a painting of, of your child or uh, someone of Abraham Lincoln, let's say. Uh, <laughs> we do, it, <laughs> that's not saying that. It's not saying that you can't have cherubim on the ark. It's saying don't make an idol out of anything. That's all that is. Okay. Great. Yeah, and that's the thing, by the way. Do you know what we make idols of? There's that little thing in the corner of our living room that we bow down to and worship all the time. We have to be really careful, get control of those graven images that we make. But it's not pictures. That's not the issue. It's worshiping these inanimate things that are not really God and worship God alone. Okay, Shane? Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you called. Thanks. Wow. Well, uh, we're, I just want to remind you again, uh, because we're going, heading to break, uh, that now's the time. If you'd like to give a gift of any size to Open Line, we want to say thank you. We have got a great offer this time. I mentioned it already, but uh, it would really be I, – I just love this book. I specifically requested this book from my life, life's reading, Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie, and that's what we're going to send you uh, for a gift of any size. So call – if you're interested in that, it's 888-644-7122 or go to our website, openlineradio.org. We're going to come right back with the mailbag. Trish is here. She's got the mailbag. She's dragging it in right now. It's so big. So we'll take care of that in a moment. Stay with me. We'll be right back right here on Open Line with Michael Redhelnick. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Michael Wright Elnick. Joining me right now is Trisha McMillan. She's the producer of Open Line, but not only is she the producer of Open Line, she let's let's give you a Hebrew name. She's the Malka of the mailbag, the queen of the questions. Malka means queen in Hebrew. And uh, she's the one that guards the questions. She sets them up. She lines them up. So uh, all of you who have written to me ever in the past and said, I wrote a question, but it doesn't seem to get on the air. Uh, just don't blame me. Just blame Trisha. That's what I, because she's the, the queen of the questions, right? But actually, you get most of them on the air, don't you, Trisha? I try to. Yeah. yeah. And periodically, and I think we'll do one pretty soon, at least for over the summer, we'll do a mailbag program where yeah. we'll catch up on almost everyone's questions. That would be great. Yeah, we'll do that. So uh, that will give me another day and you another day where we can take huh? off. Right, right, right. to we, practice what you talked about in the first segment. Yeah, you're opening resting word. exactly. So we were not uh, together last week because I was at graduation. Right, and it was interesting because Mike. Uh, I want to say Mike Faberas. He he did a great job subbing for me, and I really appreciate that. Uh, but I, I pulled him out of graduation to do it. You know, he's on our board of trustees at Moody Bible Institute, and he should have been at graduation, but. <laughs> Uh, he didn't have a role to play. You, you, I, I may have pulled it up on the computer to watch it because they streamed it, and yeah. so he was, he was instructing me. Uh, Mike was on what the different colors and what they all mean. What oh, the about stripes the doctors mean and on the like different, that. yeah, on the, on the, um, on the regalia, on the regalia that you all were wearing, uh, because with the moment I pulled it up, you were on stage, yeah, 
handing diplomas to Dr. Job, who was also on stage. So he was like, you see the you see the four bands on the arms that signifies it's a president of the school. And um, I and so had three he was bands. Kind of, he was three That's bands. what signifies a doctorate. Right. And so he was talking me through some of the and, different uh, and the things. red, the crimson. uh uh, I don't know what you call the it. Color. The color yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a black robe, but it has this crimson thing in the front of it. Yes. Uh, that represents theology. It was all, almost like a collar, except yeah. it went like all the way down. whole way yeah. down the gowns. Yeah. Uh, and both, both, both doctor, of you, you, Dr. Job and you, both yeah. had crimson. Yeah. And I, you know, I had this important job of just handing him diplomas. Right. <laughs> but you were on stage, which meant you had to, <laughs> had to, you had to look good yeah. and be there. <laughs> Doing your job, it would have been obvious if you had not been there. It would have been harder for him to do because then he got to hand it to them and do the photo op. All that to say, yes, we got to watch you on stage being part of it. Dr. Favares, Mike Favares, for sitting in for me. I really appreciate it. He did a great job. I always love it when he sits in. Uh, And, uh, okay, but two weeks before we were in Minneapolis. Yes. And, you know, it's— With a live audience. A live audience, Mm -hmm. and I asked if anyone— was uh, had listened to Open Line. There was a pretty significant number of people who had listened to Open Line at this conference. But I afterwards, when I was signing some books, a number of people came up and said that they were kitchen table partners. Ooh! And I thought that was so fun. I appreciate it so much. I love it when I meet anyone that listens to Open Line because you remember when I started this back in 1957. I thought the <laughs> <laughs> wait. No, no. But when I started, I thought Eva would be the only person listening. And uh, other people listen. I'm so grateful for them. But I'm especially grateful when I meet Kitchen Table Partners because they not only listen, they want to keep us on the air. They they do that. They they give monthly so that we can be on weekly. And we both appreciate them so much. And mm-hmm. it's great to meet them. I love that. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you're listening, you, you'd consider becoming a Kitchen Table Partner. If you do, we'll send you every other week a special audio Bible study designed exclusively for our kitchen table partners. And I hope you'll consider becoming a kitchen table partner. Become one today by calling 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Well, Tricia, what do we got? All right. Our first question is from Galen in Ohio, listens to WCRF. And he says, in the Great Tribulation, I understand there will be a temple rebuilt. Will the Dome of the Rock be there? Still, when that temple is rebuilt, because on the Temple Mount, the, the right rock's now, not going anywhere. It's there, uh, and uh, this is a mosque, right? Yeah, That's the, on the, the, the where the temple it's used the to be. The dome of the rock. I don't know if the dome will be there. It's that's a shrine, a Muslim shrine that's over the rock. But there's a rock inside that shrine. That's not going anywhere. It's the tip of the mountain. That's what it is. Okay. Uh, and they built a shrine over it. That's where the temple used to stand. Uh, and uh, there are some people who believe that there's another dome at a different part of the Temple Mount that was called the Dome of the Winds or the Dome of the Spirit, and that's where the temple will be built so it won't affect the Dome of the Rock. I don't think that's true. Uh, then there are other people. There's a, actually a guy that goes on, on makes videos available to people, wrote a book. There's a couple... And people really buy it, like this great conspiracy theory that the Temple Mount <clears throat> was not the Temple Mount, but rather it's down in the city of David, the original city that the Jebusites had that David conquered uh, that's just below the Temple Mount. And they say, oh, that's where the temple stood. No, no, no. 
The temple stood right on the Temple Mount as we know it. And yes, there will be a temple there. I don't know what's going to happen to the Dome of the Rock. No one does. Uh, but when we see it, we'll know. But there will be a temple there someday, somehow. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not going to speculate as to how it happens because I just know it will. So, okay? okay. All right. All right. Thank you for that question, Galen. Uh, our next question is from Deborah in Pennsylvania. She listens on the app. I'm reading through the Bible and have lots of questions. Um, oh, that's I, good. <laughs> it is good. I'm in Leviticus 16, 8 through 10, which says, After Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel, mm-hmm. he is to present the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. Mm -hmm. But the goat chosen by Lot for Azazel is to be presented alive before the Lord to make purification with it by sending it into the wilderness for Azazel. Mm -hmm. Her question, you may know where this is going, Mm -hmm. is what or who is Azazel? Mm -hmm. Well, there's some people who actually believe Azazel is a goat demon and that this is calling for sacrifice to goat demons. And uh, I I just find that very hard to believe because if you look at the very next chapter, it says, uh, speak to Aaron, the sons of Israel. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm looking for the verse. They they commit. Here it is. Verse seven. They must no longer offer their sacrifices to goat demons. Because apparently Israel was sinning by offering sacrifices to goat demons. So why in the world would God order them in chapter 16 to offer a sacrifice, the Yom Kippur sacrifice of all things, to a goat demon? Uh, Just uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, The Azazel is presented alive before the Lord to make a purification. That's then sent into the wilderness. I think the word Azazel literally means uh, go away, go away, goat, go away, goat, the go away, goat. Uh, And so here's how I would translate it. Uh, Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, that's the one that's going to be sacrificed, and the other for a go away goat or a scapegoat or a sent out goat. It means a go away goat. For he is to present the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as an Azazel, as a go-away goat, is to be presented alive before the Lord to make purification with it by sending it into the wilderness as a go-away goat. So you send it into the wilderness, what do you do? You make it go away, just as God takes our sins and makes them go away. And so it's an image of God taking away our sins and it's a go-away goat, and that's what I think it is. I think it has nothing to do as uh, being offered to goat demons in the wilderness, but it means a go-away goat. That's what it is, or a scapegoat, as how old versions translate it. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for that question, Deborah. You know, a sca- scapegoat just means an escape goat, to go away, to escape. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. It just got shortened. Yep. Huh. Things you just don't really think about. Yeah. All right. Well, one more question. It's from Janice in Tennessee, listens to WMBW. How do you witness to a Jewish friend who didn't like 
that her son converted to Christianity. Her son actually passed away over six years ago, and um, she teaches another Jewish lady the Old Testament. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's the caller that's, or if that's that, that's not the, the question. The que- yeah, the how question. Do you, how do, how do we share with our share Jewish with friends? Her. How do we present the good news? Well, first of all, we have to love our Jewish friends. There's a terrible history of the church persecuting the Jewish people for two millennia. So what you have to do is show that uh, we love the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and because of that, we love his Jewish family. And so we have to consciously show our love for the Jewish people. Uh, That gives us the framework in which we can talk about the Messiah. I think we, we also need to learn how to talk about the Hebrew Bible in a really positive way, learn Messianic prophecy, uh, learn learn uh, how to present the good news just using the Hebrew Bible. And by that you mean the Old Testament? Yes, for yes. those of us You don't who, have to learn Hebrew, but... You don't have to go buy a yeah. special Hebrew Bible. Yeah, but there's no New Testament. Testament for Jewish people, so they call it the Bible. Okay. The Old Testament. So the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And then uh, thirdly, I, what I would do is... Uh, learn how to communicate in a way that they can understand, but just with terms. Uh, the, the thing I would say is say Messiah instead of Christ. Uh, say Redeemer instead of Savior. Uh, those are terms that Jewish people understand. Uh, there's a whole list of them uh, that we can do. Uh, but here's the, I'm going to just say the best way to do this is get yourself a book. It's called Engaging with Jewish People. It's written by... Uh, Randy Newman, and it's a good little book. It's a, it will give, be a great tool for anyone that wants to talk with Jewish people about Jesus, about the Yeshua, the Messiah, uh, the best way. Just pick up Engaging with Jewish People by Randy Newman. And okay? does, does that talk about presenting the gospel using the Old Testament mm-hmm. and also these terms yeah. that you mentioned, the Messiah and Redeemer? Yeah, and many others. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. wonderful, because, okay. you know, for someone like me, it's like, what? how do I do that? Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to leave people hanging too much. Yeah. But, okay, so that book would answer some of those questions yep. and be a good tool for them. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you so much for that question, Janice. Hope that helps you as you talk with your friend. Yep. Well, thanks so much for sending in those questions. You can always do that by going to openlineradio.org. Click on the link that says Ask Michael a Question. Trish will put your question in the mailbag. We'll get to it as soon as we can. Thanks, Trish, for putting those together. Uh, This is Michael Rydonick. That was Trisha McMillan. We'll be right back with more of your calls in just a moment. So glad you stuck around to uh, study the scriptures with us. Here on Open Line, my name is Michael Rydelnik. One frequent question I get on this program is, how should we think about the Jewish people? What does it mean that God chose the Jewish people? Well, one of our underwriters, Chosen People Ministries, this is an organization that brings the good news to Jewish people all around the world, wants to help answer those kinds of questions, and they're offering a free book. It's called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. This book explains God's promises to the Jewish people, and what they mean today. If you'd like a copy of Israel, the Jewish people, and Jesus, just go to our website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down. You'll see on the right side near the bottom, it says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that. It'll take you to a page where you can sign up for your own copy of Israel, the Jewish people, and Jesus. 
Okay, we're going to talk with Don in Muncie, Indiana, listening to WGNR. Welcome to Open Line, Don. How can I help you? Hi, Michael. Thanks for taking my call. I wondered when I read the Bible why the pronouns in the Old Testament are not capitalized. I know the English language reason for it, but I just wondered if the original was written with the pronouns capitalized. There's no such thing as capitals in Hebrew, none whatsoever. <laughs> so Just like Greek. Uh, okay. So the idea is that the so it began, I think, a long time ago that when the the text, obviously, the pronoun refers to God out of honor to him, uh, the pronoun was capitalized. But uh, I think the trend in more recent translations is to not do that. Um, you know, even when I write, I wrote in the commentary and things like that, I would capitalize pronouns if, if they were, uh, if the antecedent was God. But... Uh, and the, or the Lord Jesus or the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Triune God. Uh, nevertheless, that's not the trend in current writing or translation. So, uh, hope okay. that helps. Okay, uh, thanks for your call. We're going to talk you. to Julia in South Florida, listening on WRMB. Hello, Julia. How can I help you today? Good morning. I do think you guys are doing a really good job. Oh, thank <laughs> I you. I just want to tell you that. Thanks. And I do have a church uh, home that I could have asked this question, but because so many people always are asking you questions, I thought, well, let's see what he says about this okay. today. So I was reading about um, a lesson, and it uh, mentions the Apocrypha. I don't know much about it, but I was just wondering, seeing how it's not part of the Bible, whereas many people say it's like the missing portions of the Bible, Seeing how it's not part of our 66 books, should we as Christians even reference to portions of the Apocrypha at all when we're using it to substantiate like other scriptures or just when we're speaking, you know, should we use it, you know, in reference? Because, I mean, I thought about Second Timothy. I mean, if all scriptures are inspired to God, you know, we have other Bible bases to sustain well, well, Julia, the Bible. Ju- Julia, the thing is— that we use lots of books that aren't Scripture. We just don't consider them inspired, inerrant. Uh, you know, the, there's lots of books that we use. I think the Apocrypha is especially helpful for giving us a, a, a historical context, believe it or not, for the New Testament, because they were written in the intertestamental period, and so They kind of give us a framework for understanding what the religious ideas were, the spiritual ideas were in the New Testament period. So I think it's valuable for that to give us a a historical context for understanding the New Testament in terms of spiritual or religious ideas. Uh, I, I would never use it as inspired or inerrant or authoritative. That actually didn't come up until the 16th century, when the Reformation happened and, you know, the the Reformers were saying sola scriptura, only scripture, and there were some doctrines that were being taught previous to that that were not found in scripture. So uh, what the Catholic Church did in the Counter-Reformation is that we can find these doctrines in the Apocrypha. So they included them in scripture as sort of a quasi-secondary class of scripture. But before that, they really weren't considered scripture. And uh, I, I still don't think so, but I do think that they're useful as a historical context for reading the New Testament. 
Okay. Okay. So that's, oh, I do understand what you said and thank you for that. But I was just want to say that if that's the case and it's just reference, are we using it though? Some people are seem like they're using it more as pure Bible. Yeah. They're mistaken. I think. Our, I think they're mistaken. Okay. So that's what I'm asking. Yeah. You know, like yeah, as a Christian, if we are. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I wouldn't use it as scripture. No, uh, I would definitely use it as a historical context. So, okay. Okay, for reference. All right, well, thank you very much. Great. Okay, thank you for your call, Julia. We're going to speak with uh, uh, Sam, listening in Chicago on WMBI. How can I help you today, Sam? Thanks for taking my call. Um, In Acts 8.36, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe Philip goes to teach a eunuch as directed by the Holy Spirit. And the eunuch responded to Philip by saying, there's water right here. What's up with me from being baptized? So my question was, in today's church, um, do you think that baptismal classes are necessary for new believers? Um, Because I know sometimes they may take a couple weeks and it may be kind of intimidating for somebody who wants to get baptized. Do you think it's still a necessary thing? I think think they are necessary. Here's why. The... A royal official from Ethiopia was obviously a proselyte to Judaism. In being proselytized to convert to Judaism, what had happened was he had been taught about ritual washings as part of Judaism and, in fact, had to undergo a immersion in water to be converted to Judaism. And so he knew all about the, the teaching about baptism and what it meant and what its significance was, which is why he says, hey, I see water. I have a new faith. Now I, I want to be baptized, and, and that's why he did it. I would say that most people today, when they come to faith in Jesus, they don't have that background. They don't understand it. And so I would feel it's essential to teach them the significance and meaning of baptism as it's taught in Scripture rather than in culture or what they might think they understand about it. So, yeah, I think baptismal classes are great. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's it for the first hour. Thanks, Tony, for your call. Keep listening. There's a second hour of Open Line on most of these stations. If your station doesn't carry Open Line's second hour, just check it out on the radio app or online or through the podcast. During the break, check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. That page has all sorts of links you'll find helpful, including how to get our current Bible study resource and how to become a kitchen table partner. Uh, also, second hour is coming up straight ahead with more of your questions about the Bible, so stick around with us. Open Line with Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Moody Bible Institute.